Hey guys, good morning to you. We be in 2 Corinthians, turn to chapter 6. While you're turning, you know, uh, we probably have all had this experience at one time or another, if, you, if you've been in the church or been a Christian for a while, where somebody seems to show great enthusiasm for the gospel, seems clearly to be a Christian, uh, very enthusiastic about being a Christian, and then later on just seems to kind of fall off the edge of the earth and seems not to be very interested in Christ. And sometimes, maybe you've lived long enough to see this, someone will actually come out and deny the faith, just go in the other direction. I had one of you come up to me just recently and talk about a good friend of yours who had done just that, who had been very serious about studying the Bible for several years, had actually taught the Bible, and now claims to be an atheist. And the question was, how in the world does that happen, and how does that fit with God's promises that He will bring to completion that which He has begun in you? He will never, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All the promises that will persevere till the end. How does that experience, that real live observation, fit with the promises of God in the Scriptures? And whenever that situation comes to me, I always say, to my friends who are, who are going through it as they observe their friends, that uh, you know, they're really only one of two possibilities. One is that you, you have here a true believer, but who is backsliding. You know, Methodists are not the only ones who use that phrase backsliding. That's a real uh, phenomenon where someone can be a real Christian and for a season they just go into a spiritual funk. And uh, you've done it and you've seen others do it. That's backsliding. Uh, that's one possibility that you have a backslidden believer, and a backslidden believer will repent uh, eventually and come back to the Lord. The other possibility is the person was never actually converted. You thought they were. They taught with tears. They seemed to be enthusiastic about uh, everything that has to do with the kingdom. They tithed. They came to church regularly. But that does not make anybody a Christian. People who are unconverted can do those things with various motives. And so it's highly possible, and in a lot of cases, highly likely, that that's actually what happened. You thought for sure that they were a Christian. If they're not a Christian, you've never seen one before in your life, you said. Well, guess what? Your antennae are not perfect. No one, I mean, Satan can counterfeit everything except for a regenerate heart. He can counterfeit anything else on the outside, so you just have to be careful. Now, does that mean that we hold each other in suspicion all the time? No. We treat each other as brothers, and confidently so. Uh, but when you see a situation like this, you have to realize that, you know, we can be fooled. I've been fooled before on, on many occasions with people that I, I thought were converted, uh, but uh, who were not. I remember one time I was sitting in the dentist chair, and I had a new hygienist. And I just thought I had this special spiritual sense. There was something about her, joy in her life, uh, a, a, a sense of holiness in her life. And so I just said, hey, are you a believer? And she said, a believer in what? <laughs> so, oh, well, just, you know, in, in Jesus. And she said, no, no, I don't go to church. Uh, you know, we, we think that we, we have these real sensitive spiritual antennae, and sometimes we don't. Uh, so Paul is concerned that some people could have heard the gospel, responded favorably initially, and never really truly got converted. 
So when we encourage each other, which the Bible does often, the New Testament is basically a, a, a massive encouragement to persevere in the faith. The Bible is written largely to church people to say, here's who Christ is and here are the uh, implications of following Him. Stay with Him. So when we come to church, we're encouraging ourselves as believers, but we're also aware of this. Some people will go to church for years, like myself, and not get converted until later. So all the teaching that Christians get is also good for the non-Christians who are regularly attending and those occasional visitors, which I've also been and got converted. So uh, we have to remember that we're teaching ourselves. We're not always absolutely sure of where everybody stands spiritually. All we know for sure is ourselves. Peter says, make your calling and your election sure. I can't make your calling and your election sure. I can only make my own calling and election sure. That's the heart that I know. I don't know your heart. But we encourage each other to persevere. And when someone falls off in your church, when someone stops attending, you should be concerned. It reflects something going on. Either they got their feelings hurt or there's a relationship out of order or they're spiritually disinterested. Maybe they were never really converted. So on your inactive lists in your church, your, your members of your church who are no longer active, you've probably got your number one evangelistic field right there. Please tend to it. Often we just let other churches tend to our own inactive lists. Why don't we take our own inactive lists and tend to it with the gospel? That's what Paul's going to do in this text. Now you remember that Paul is rejoicing in 2 Corinthians because... The Corinthians have repented over their majority rejection of Paul as their apostle. They repented over that. But there's still a significant minority of people who are kind of trying to live in two worlds. The, the worlds of the super apostles and the world of the apostle Paul. And Paul is saying you've got to choose this day whom you will serve. Either the Lord, Jesus Christ, or some other version of the gospel. So Paul is arguing with the minority in the church. And that, isn't that what we're doing? Even if we're in a healthy church, we find ourselves as we teach and minister to people, we're always arguing and pleading with a good number of people. We're not real sure about. Well, of course we're not. Because in this world, the visible church is made up of converted and non-converted. You say, well, no, I'm a Baptist. We only baptized converted people. Oh, do you really? Well, I got some news for you. You baptized me and I wasn't converted uh, when, I was, when I was nine years old. So come on now. I needed to be converted and I was in a Baptist church. So you've got all, you know, like they say in the state of Alabama, we got more baptized people than we do members of the state. Uh, everybody's claiming all these baptized you know, Christians. Well, just realize that even in the best of churches, you've got a mixed multitude. Not intentionally. The church should never do anything to sanction unbelief or to take in someone as a member who doesn't show the evidences of belief. But people show us evidences of their faith, they make a profession of faith, and they don't even know it sometimes that they're a phony. They're self-deluded. And we find out later that their lives are not in Christ. Paul's concerned about these people. So let's read this text in light of that phenomenon that we know all too well in our own day. And Paul's going to show us how to deal with it. How do you deal with this phenomenon of people drifting away and, and making us concerned about whether they even know the Lord? Let's look at 
chapter 6, verse 1. Now remember, Paul is following upon this great text that we just studied last week on the ministry and message of reconciliation. And then he says, verse 1, chapter 6, working together with him then. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with the idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, Paul was observing that a minority of the Corinthian church, a very significant minority, was still questioning his apostolic authority. That obviously, naturally, immediately, leads him to concern about whether they've received the real gospel of Christ and have understood it and have embraced it. If they're questioning his authority, that means they're taking somebody else's authority. Everybody has an authority. It may be yourself, but everybody chooses an authority. So if you reject this one, you've got another one somewhere. And the ones that are nearby are the super apostles that are preaching a different gospel It's not a gospel simply by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of believing in Jesus and also performing your works of keeping the Jewish traditions. And Paul sees that as another gospel and a gospel that does not lead to heavenly life. Now, folks, we need to be just as clear in our own day. If someone is of another religion, 
They have every right to do that. And praise the Lord, we live in a country where they're free to exercise their religious rights, at least for now. And we ought to thank God for that and be willing to fight wars to preserve their freedom to believe something that's wrong. We would be willing to die in battle for them to have the right to do that. That's, that's a core value of our country's legacy. At the same time that we would die for the freedom that they have to believe something that's not true, we're not fooled for a moment that it's not true. It is not true. And furthermore, that it does not lead to eternal life. So there's a sense of urgency. And we saw that last week. Paul said, I plead with you on behalf of God. He is God's agent to plead with us. And we are God's agents to plead with those around us who do not believe the truth. So when we amalgamate the gospel of Christ with some other way of salvation and call it Christian, Paul's not fooled. And he says, you can possibly hear the grace of God in vain because you tried to mix it with something else. You co-opted it under some other agenda that you've got. You didn't believe the pure gospel and therefore your eternal life is at, is at stake. So he can see in their spirits, in their words, in their actions, a drifting from the theological core, the essentials, the theological essentials of the gospel. There are doctrines, things you must believe and be deeply convicted of in order to have eternal life. It's part of the conversion experience that your convictions about Christ and the gospel uh, are deeply held. But also Paul notices that they're drifting because he can see it in their behavior. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the church today in our country and see that, that men are marrying whomever they want to, whenever they want to, having sex with whomever they want to, whenever they want to, however they want to. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see something's wrong here. There's some people here who don't really believe. You can see it in their behavior. You can see it in their civic life or their lack of a very progressive civic life. You can see it in their racism. These people just simply don't know the Lord. Because when you know the Lord, He not only reconciles us to Himself, He reconciles us across all human barriers. So you can look at the church and say, something's wrong here. So you can hear it in their doctrinal statements, you can hear it in their questioning of, of uh, divine authority, and you can see it in their conduct. So it's got Paul concerned. And Paul, out of love for the Corinthians now, is going to speak to them very strongly. And we should too. Not in a shrill, condemning way, but in a way of urgent love. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. Now let's look at his, his approach here. He says to us, to the Corinthians, to everyone, we must first of all receive the grace of the gospel. Notice that Paul says at the very beginning of verse 1 that we work together with Him. He's referring to the previous chapter where he says we are ambassadors for Christ. Gentlemen, do you understand you are co-laborers with Jesus Christ? You're in His business. He is your missionary partner. It's amazing how we've been elevated to such a status. We're partners with Christ in His work. Paul uses this same language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Partners with God. Wow, that's an amazing thing. Nobody has here a partner equal to that. I tell you that. You may have a good business partner, but you don't have a partner like this. Working together with Him then, He says, we appeal to you. What's the appeal? 
not to receive the grace of God in vain. You say, I didn't think someone could receive the grace of God in vain. I thought once you received the grace of God that He was always gracious to you and would never leave you and forsake you. Here's what Paul Paul means here, and he uses this kind of language in Galatians and other places where there's a sense in which or a level of reception of the gospel where you haven't really received the gospel for eternal life. I'll give you an example. There are people who go to church and they hear that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He's the Son of God, that He rose from the dead. They believe all that and therefore think they've received the gospel because they believe the facts of the gospel. Well, I've got some news for you. The devil believes all of the facts of the gospel. He believes, the devil believes in the theological system of God's grace. He knows it's true. He knows it with more conviction than you have. Here's the difference. His conviction makes him massively angry. He hates it. He despises it. So it's not just a matter of the facts that you know. It's not even a matter of whether you believe they're true or not. What matters is whether you commit yourselves to them. They become life to you. And you take it on as your only hope in this life and the next. That's the difference. So you can receive the grace of God in a certain way. And it can be in vain. Or, as Jesus shows us in the parable of the four seeds in Matthew chapter 13. We studied this just recently. Jesus sows the seed. It falls on different types of soil. On some of those soils you actually get something to spring up right away. Remember the soil number two? It was shallow, but the immediate response to the seed of the Word was enthusiastic reception. Something comes up out of the ground. But then when the persecutions come, it wilts and dies. Or the third soil, you remember? It comes up enthusiastically, but the soil wasn't cultivated. There were weeds in the soil, and they come up and choke the life, just like greed chokes the life out of the otherwise seeming believer. So there can be a reception of the Word of God in a certain sense. And there can be an enthusiastic response. There can even be something that looks like growth. But what's the difference with seeds 2 and 3 and seed 4? The fourth seed is the one that springs up, has depth of soil, and and the weeds have been cultivated out of it. And what happens the seed bears fruit. So, there's only one fertile soil. And in the church, we're dealing with all kinds of soils, and we don't know for sure what we've got. We've always got to be pleading with everybody to persevere, not knowing exactly where they are. And Paul is saying to them here, don't receive the seed of the Word of God. Don't receive the message of the grace of God. Don't even receive the feelings of the grace of God without receiving, in fact... The fullness of the grace of God. You say, oh, well, thanks for warning me, but how do I do that? Glad you asked. We'll get it here from the text. But Paul is saying here, look, if you think that there's some other way of salvation or some other method that's going on or some other version of this Christian religion that you need to know, let me tell you something. And he quotes the Bible here. He says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is it, gentlemen. If you're waiting for the eternal message to come that gives eternal life, and you're still shopping for the message, I'm telling you, it's already here. 
There's not another one to come, he says. The day of salvation is here. When Jesus was reading the scroll of the Torah in the synagogue in Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, and he reads that famous text out of Isaiah, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the theological word, the nowness of this message has hit and everything is bound up in it. So we're not waiting for something else, some other message. We're not looking to amalgamate it with something else. This is the saving message of God that was promised in the Old Testament. This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So gentlemen, he's saying to us, please be very careful to receive the grace of God in true humility, in fruitfulness, in meekness, persevere in the Word of God, keep up walking with Jesus Christ, keep learning. If you're not growing, you're not going, as they say. Continue with Christ. Don't receive the message of the Gospel in vain and have it be for you just one more religious notion, just one more religious study of one of the world's great religions, and now I'll go on and study the other seven great religions, and then I'll be an educated man. Don't do, receive it like that. Don't receive it the way religion is taught to you in most universities. No, you receive it as the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. The now, the favorable day has come. Everything's bound up in this. Give your life to Him completely in the gospel. That's the way you receive the grace of God. So he's saying be very careful. And then, by example, we can look at Him and say, please be careful with everybody else. Please keep your eyes open. Please keep pleading with everybody around you. Help them persevere. That's what the visible church is all about. We bring the family together. We realize this is not a perfect church yet. We've got people of different religious persuasions among us, different levels of maturity, and different levels of perception, and different soils. We have all four soils in the church. Please be aware that this is going on. Heighten your sensitivity to the the condition of your neighbor who's sitting next to you in the pew. If you see something like the Apostle Paul saw, where they question the authority of the Scriptures, or the uniqueness of the Gospel of Christ, or you see something in your life that's not, it's not in order, or more subtly, if when someone's explaining why they do something, you hear nothing of Jesus in there, then you should be concerned. Look, there are burdens that come with you when you're a Christian. Tremendous burdens that come. You now understand that every human being is going to heaven or to hell. Every one of them. In your family, in your neighborhood, in your business, all your customers, all your clients, all your patients, all of them are going one place or the other. You have a burden. And you're continually looking for ways to urge people to receive the grace of God fully and with full usefulness and not in vain. Yeah, in Memphis, Tennessee, most people would claim general familiarity with the church and with the gospel. Folks, that doesn't save anybody. Not, not any, any more saved than your dog in the backyard. General familiarity or knowledge of the facts doesn't save anybody. The only difference it will make in the final judgment is that they will be judged more severely. So take the burden, please, that the Apostle Paul has for these Corinthians. And we're going to see that their misbehavior... And their contempt of Him never diverted His love and concern for them. And you be sure this is happening in your life. That no matter how someone around you is treating you, remember, you're the one who ends up triumphant in the end. 
And they end up under judgment if they don't trust in Christ. Keep that in your head. You do not let anything come between you and, and the possibility of sharing the gospel with them. We'll get into that in a moment. But the Apostle Paul is pleading with us, and he's also showing us how to plead with others in this first, first two verses. Now, secondly, notice that when we receive the grace of the gospel, we must also receive the genuine or authentic messengers of the gospel. If you're like me, there have been some pretty nerdy people in your life who have taught you about Jesus. <laughs> some people that, you know, maybe wouldn't be your golfing buddies. But there's something about their lives that is really significant. You know, I, I remember uh, I was with Allison one time. Uh, on our, uh, it was one of our big anniversaries, so I took her out to a nice restaurant. I think it was Wendy's. And we were sitting there eating lunch. And we were having this great conversation, just the two of us. And we were walking out and she said, did you hear what those two girls next to us said? I said, no, I was talking to you, sweetie. I mean, we were having this intimate conversation. <laughs> she heard, she, it's almost as though her brain tape recorded everything these two women said in the table next to us while she's talking to me. I have no idea how women do that. Just, I was completely baffled, you know. But later on, as I got a little older, I realized she can legitimately do that. Now, if I knew what the women next door said, I wouldn't have heard a word that Allison said. But she's actually competent to do that. I don't understand it. Anyway, I said, no, I didn't hear what they said. I was talking to you. So I said, what did they say? And she said, well, they were talking about how they were living with their boyfriends and, you know, that they used to go to church. And, and then she said, one of them said to the other, you know, my mother doesn't really approve of this, this going on. And she said, you know, there's something about my mother's life I wish I had. Don't think for a minute that no matter what people around you think, if you're walking with Christ, they know you've got something they don't have. They know it. There's a sense where you don't even have to tell them. They can see it. There's a contentedness. There's an order and discipline to your life. There are priorities. There's a sense of purpose. You know why you're here. You're glad to get up every morning, go serve the Lord, or kind of glad. You're gladder than you would have been if you hadn't been a Christian. And you're loving and kind and forgiving more than you used to be. They can see it. They know there's something different. And the Apostle Paul is saying, would you please recognize this? That the people who brought you the gospel, there is something about their lives. And when you receive the gospel, you need to recognize in them that they're also products of the gospel. And furthermore, notice that the apostle is setting us an example. And he's saying, gentlemen, if you'd like to be an effective ambassador, if you'd like to be effective in your urgings of other people to come and know Christ, they better see something different in you. Now what should they see? Let's look, let's look at this text and we'll see. First of all, they are commendable people. The authentic messengers of the gospel, including you, must be commendable people in a number of respects. And Paul, you know, he puts it in a funny way. Uh, he says, um, he says in some places we're not commending ourselves, and then here he says, we commend ourselves in every way. Wow. Sounds very boastful. What's Paul boasting in? the work of Jesus Christ in his life. And you know, he says in Galatians 6, verse 14, he says, May I never boast about anything except Christ and Him crucified through whom 
The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's boasting in Galatians 6.14 about the sanctifying power of the cross in his own life. He's not boasting about his flesh. He's boasting about what Christ has done in his life in changing him. And he's saying here, we, look at this language, commend ourselves in every way. Gentlemen, how about it? How far are you from saying that? Whatever the delta is, would you deal with that delta this week? What is keeping you from saying to anyone who would hear the gospel from you, I commend myself to you in every way. If you're not kind to your wife, if you're not nurturing of your children, if you're not paying your bills on time, if you're not kind to the administrative assistant in your office, you can't say I commend myself to you in every way. So would you please clean this mess up until you can say I commend myself to you in every way. That's what the authentic messenger of the gospel must be able to do. So if we go out there and say, hey, I'm an ambassador for Christ, and then we live like hell, that's a total contradiction. So folks have to be able to get close to us, see how we live, and see that there's something commendable there. And it's not showing off. It's just being yourself in Christ. Some people say, you know, I don't want to be in ministry because you live in a fishbowl. I say, well, you can't do evangelism without a fishbowl. The fishbowl is your friend. Because people can look at your life and say, that's commendable. If they're, if they're being honest. And you have to be able to commend yourself in the way you do your business. Are you ripping people off? Are you deceiving people? Are you giving partial truths? Are you taking advantage of people? Are you running down your competitors just because they're your competitors? Then it's very difficult for you to share the gospel with someone that you just, just did that with or to. So we must be able to commend ourselves in every way. And how does the apostle commend himself? First of all, we commend them for their endurance. Paul gives nine types of sufferings here. And he says, you Corinthians are you, you, this, the minority of the church. You're being very impressed with people who are really slick and eloquent. Let me tell you what commends me. is my weakness and the persecutions that I've endured. Have you endured your persecutions when folks have opposed you because you're a Christian and you know it? You've been overlooked for promotion because someone in that organization spoke against you because of your evangelical faith. This is your opportunity to demonstrate Christ and to live a commendable life because you didn't make an enemy out of them. You may be their enemy, but they are not your enemy. And some of you live in very hostile situations. And you must always commend yourself to them by loving back those who are not loving you. Paul suffered here greatly with afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings. Have you been beaten up physically yet? Have you been in prison? Most of us have not. Have you caused a, a riot because of your faith? Probably not. Paul did. Sleepless nights being concerned for people who are lost, undergoing, skipping meals one after the other and going hungry for the sake of the gospel. Folks, when you get the opportunity to suffer for the gospel, you get your opportunity to commend yourself to other people as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We spend all kinds of money and all kinds of time and effort on avoiding pain. It's amazing how we Americans are into pain management full-time, 
And I'm not in favor of pain. I want you to know. What I'm in favor of is the gospel. And when the gospel brings us pain, we are to receive it and to endure it. And Jesus even says, Rejoice and be glad for the prophets before you were persecuted. So you're being numbered among the prophets of God when you endure marginalization, contempt, scorn, all that crap that's put upon the people of God because they are the people of God. Paul wore it as a badge. And Paul knew how to weep. He was a very sensitive person. And he happened to have had champagne tastes, I really think. This man was educated at the highest level. He was introduced to the finest things in life. He came from a family of privilege. He was a Roman citizen as a Jewish man. He was privileged. He knew what it was like to have the things of this world. And so don't think for a minute he didn't feel the pain of all this social scorn, emotional abuse, and physical torment. He felt it all, sometimes with tears. But he wore it as a badge and as a commendation in presenting the gospel to other people. Just realize when that's happening to you, this is your chance. Take on a commendation. He did it. And for that, he is commendable because of his endurance. Secondly, for his character. The authentic messengers of the gospel are commendable for their character. Paul says for purity. Paul's going to call them to purity. He's not calling them to something he's not doing. If you wanted to know how to live a pure life, and Paul was your Sunday school teacher, all you had to do was ask one question, Paul, how do you do it? And he knew. He fought all the temptations you fight, every one of them. And he had a method for every one of them. And if you asked him how he dealt with it, he would tell you. How do you deal with pride? Oh, Paul talked about that a lot. Paul was a proud man by nature. Very proud man. How do you deal with that, Paul? How do you deal with anger and malice, Paul? Because you, you were so angry, you were killing people as a religious terrorist before you got converted. How did you manage that? How did you manage your anger? Believe me, you had an answer for that. If you would be someone who is sharing the gospel, you need answers. Because when you call someone to Christ, you're actually going to be calling them to a pure life. And you need to show them how to live that life. That's the reason that real evangelism and discipleship is life on life. The fit, you have to be in the fishbowl and other people have to see how you answer it. And you say, well, I'm just not really good at that. Well, let's work on it. And then you can tell other people, I'm not really good at that yet. Repentantly. You can tell them the truth. And then you can struggle together with them. But Paul says, first of all, uh, I've sought to live a life of purity and then of knowledge. Paul read his Bible too. We're spending time every Thursday morning reading our Bible. Believe me, Paul spent time reading the Bible. You can see it in this text. He's quoting verse after verse after verse about a score of Old Testament texts come to mind in this one chapter we just read. Paul's life is suffused with the Bible. He says, I had purity. I had knowledge. I put my mind and my heart and my soul to this thing. I was patient and kind. Now there's something for the old man Saul who is the religious terrorist. Look at him now. Osama bin Laden is patient and kind. You know, the people didn't first believe that. When Paul, when everybody, the word went out, Paul got converted, they just flat didn't believe it. Oh, Osama bin Laden, a Christian, you kidding me? Yeah, right. That's what they all said. Not only was he converted, he was the picture of patience and kindness. Look at 2 Corinthians. This is the religious terrorist dealing with these knuckleheads. 
patiently and kindly. Paul says, you all saw that, you know it. And so you know that the gospel has power because you see it in my life. And he goes on to say, I have the Holy Spirit, which leads to genuine love. So Paul here shows these amazing moral characteristics that have taken place in his life. And gentlemen, to be an authentic communicator, there has to be a moral life there. Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he says we live in a pluralist society. Everybody's got their own perspective. Everybody has their religion. And he says everybody assumes they have moral uh, equivalence. Well, they don't. The gospel is the only way to be saved. And the Christian religion is the only one that's true. But everybody out there thinks they're all morally equivalent. They have equal value. They don't. Well, so how are they going to find out, says Newbegin, that there's one that really is uniquely the truth? He says, well, because there will be something among the people that arrests their attention. In Acts chapter 2, he said, it was when the tongues of fire came on their head. So, you see people hanging around with flames coming off the top of their head. Well, shucks, I got a little too exercised there. It happened again, you know. So you, you see tongues of fire coming up off people's heads. You say, hey, man, I, never, I ain't never done that. <laughs> I'd never seen that before in my life. What in the heck is going on, you say? Fire on your head. You know you got fire on your head? Yeah, man, I got fire on my head. Where'd that come from? Well, I'll tell you, it's the Holy Spirit. Where'd that come from? Well, because Jesus Christ was exalted. So see, in other words, there's something different about the community that has to be explained. Here's Newbegin's point. So often the church doesn't need any explanation at all. We're just like the Rotary Club or the baseball team or the bridge club. We're no different at all. Nobody needs an explanation, which means nobody needs the gospel because there's no delta between the way that we live and the way that they live. Your life has to arrest by its purity, its patience, its kindness, its love. It has to be a life that is being developed into something quite different than the typical life of this world. Paul says, you know us now. You know uh, me and you know, the, you know Timothy, you know Sylvanus, you know Silas, you know these people. And you know this is true about us. So we commend ourselves to you in every way. Not only in our endurance, but in the way that we live our lives. And he goes on to say, look at here, he gives three methodologies. He says, we don't use the methods of this world. We don't use manipulations. We're not marketeers. Please, come on gentlemen. So many churches in the past 25 years have been reading books on marketing and you can look at them now. Boy, they really look slick. You go in and you hear some great music for a while and somebody gives you a cup of coffee and they're being really nice to you and there's no gospel in there. And you can be as nice as you want to and attract as big a crowd as you want to, but if you don't give someone the gospel that they're a sinner, that they're destined for hell without Christ, that God has graciously sent His own Son, that by putting your faith in Him and walking with Him and giving your life to Him, you can walk right on into eternal life. If that message is not there, all the marketing in the world is not going to make any difference. And Paul is showing here that, look, here are our methods. First of all, truthful speech. And we commend ourselves to you because we never manipulated you. We never airbrushed anything off the message that was a constituent element of the message of salvation. I never failed to tell you 
that you are a sinner worthy of God's wrath, but that God in His mercy has sent His love in Jesus Christ. I never failed to tell you the hard news, did I? Why? Because I was telling you the truth of the full gospel. And Paul says, these other guys may come in and flatter you and tell you how brilliant you are and tell you that you just need a little tweaking in your life and you may like them better. But they didn't tell you the truth. I commend myself to you because I'm not as slick and eloquent, but I just told you the flat truth. He says, what else? He says, we had a method of the power of God, not the power of men, not the power of persuasion. We trusted in the power of God. And so he, Paul makes it very clear throughout 1st and 2nd Corinthians that it's in the weakness of men that the power of God is demonstrated so that you will trust the power of God and not the power of men. If you say to me, boy, I became a Christian, I'll tell you why. I had this brilliant professor and he could answer every argument I had. And for the, ever since I decided to be a Christian, I decided to be a Christian because of his brilliance, I just think of him all the time. And I'm always asking myself, you know, with this difficult question, this intellectual struggle, what would Professor Jones say? You know, I find myself asking that all the time. I'm saying, there's a man who's not converted. He's really impressed with Professor Jones. But he's never really gotten to the point of being deeply impressed beyond all others with Jesus Christ. Now there's a man who's converted. And Paul says it was the power of God. And we commend ourselves to you because you know it. Because you were converted through the messenger who had human weakness. And the power that you saw was the power of God in this simple gospel I proclaim. And gentlemen, remember that in your own teaching. Some of you are preachers. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are small group leaders. Remember, it's not that people are so impressed with you. If they walk out of that Bible study and say, Man, you're so brilliant. I never saw all those things in the Bible. I never would have gotten at it without you. You should be really concerned. Uh, Because here we're looking for the power of God. And Paul says also we had weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Weapons of righteousness. What are those? Well, we're not real sure. But Ephesians 6 might give you a little hint. You know, that we're wearing the armor of God, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. But here he says weapons of righteousness, which probably means we had ways of dealing with people that were righteous. Righteousness often means living a life according to the law of God. And we came among you and we immediately implemented discipline. We said a man is not going to sleep with his stepmother and be considered a legitimate member of this church. There was a weapon of righteousness. That weapon was church discipline that we're going to have spine in our own community. We're going to be a disciplined family. And we're going to exercise social justice. 1 Corinthians 10, remember, we're not going to rip the poor off and have our drunken little tea parties while they don't eat anything to eat. And weapons of righteousness, we're going to have social justice in this very church and we're going to live as brothers and sisters. And there's not going to be any racial distinctions here. We're not going to have Jews over here and Gentiles over here. We're going to be a multicultural church. There are going to be weapons of righteousness. We're going to impose those upon ourselves because that's who God is. He is a God of righteousness. So that's, those are the kinds of weapons He's talking about. They're spiritual weapons. He's not beating people with sticks and throwing them in jail. He is exercising God's power through God's discipline in His church. So He's saying, I'm commendable because of the endurance and the character. And thirdly, the confidence. We receive the authentic messengers of the gospel 
because they are commendable for their confidence. And Paul here gives seven pairs of paradoxical antitheses. Paradoxical antitheses. Why is it paradoxical? Here's why. Because he says, we're commending ourselves to you because we were willing to live a life where on the outside, it looks like we're total losers. But on the inside, we are total victors. In other words, we lived consistently a life that was based on finding our pleasure from how God sees us. Instead of trying to manage our lives, image manage according to how men might see us. You watched us do this. And look at this list. Everybody thought we were like unknown people. Completely insignificant. Passed over. Oh no, we're not unknown. We're well known, he says. Well known. By whom? By the living God. He happens to be my dad. <laughs> you know, I was, I was interested in the, in the article in CNN the other day. I, I, for some reason, it just passed me by that Anderson Cooper is Gloria Vanderbilt's son. I, never, I just never heard that. This guy is Van, Gloria Vanderbilt's son. No wonder he's got a good job in CNN, you know? But the article was about Gloria Vanderbilt not leaving him a dime. You know? Now, normally, if you have a mother like Gloria Vanderbilt, you can just say, hey, my name's Sandy. I'm Gloria Vanderbilt's son. <laughs> but I thought, how sad. You know, he has this wealthy, powerful mother, and she just basically, I guess, just disinherited him. Guys, your dad is the most famous being in the entire universe. Everybody everywhere knows who he is. He's your dad. Now, what Paul is saying is, we commend ourselves to you because we're willing to live in this world among people who don't know who we are. Nobody knows that my mother is Gloria Vanderbilt. Nobody knows that my daddy is God. (laughs) And I'm willing to be incognito. And I commend myself to you because you know I've lived here incognito and I haven't complained about it a bit. And the reason I'm not complaining is I don't, frankly, give a flying rip what you think. Because my daddy is God. (laughs) So I don't care what you think. And therefore, you can't push my buttons. You can't make me defensive. Because it's it's a fact of reality. You're not going to take my daddy away from me. And he owns everything. So go ahead and say whatever you want to say. I know who I am and where I'm going, where I came from. That's what Paul is saying. We committed ourselves to you because we lived in paradox. All those paradoxes. That's the way of the cross, gentlemen. If you want to proclaim the cross to someone, if you want them to understand the cross, they have to see the cross. How do they see it? Someone who's perfectly happy to live in this life incognito. Not only incognito, not only that we don't know who your daddy is, but it sure looks like your daddy is a total loser. It looks like you're going, your life is going the wrong direction. It looks like you've completely missed out. Don't you know around you, you only go around once? You'll get all the gusto you can, and you got no gusto at all. You got no game at all. You're a total loser. You say, oh no, you don't know the gospel. You want to know why there's a big smile on my face? You want to know why I triumph even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Because my daddy is God. That's why. And Paul is saying, we committed ourselves to you because you could see us living in this paradox where men think we're losers and we know we're winners. That's what he's saying here. And this is what we've got to be able to ask God to help us do. Lord, help me believe your promises. 
so that the circumstances of this life, including my own life here, does not trample me down. If I get cancer, it's not all over. Gentlemen, please. It's just getting started. You just got your ticket. <laughs> if you get cancer, you, you may have your ticket. You don't know. This may be your, your opportunity to go home. And that is your opportunity to demonstrate your paradoxical living. Even while your body is wasting away, your spirit is rejoicing. I've seen it over and over again in real believers. Paul is saying, we're confident. Now, notice, they're not only commendable, but they are loving. And we've spoken of this, so we're going to race on. But Paul is saying, look, we've spoken freely to you. We love you regardless of how you've treated us. You know what the problem is in our relationship? It's your love for me. You know, you're not holding the messenger of the gospel in high esteem. You think somebody else is slicker or better or more lovable than the messengers of the gospel. You're constipated in your love. Open your hearts. Come on now. And reciprocate the love of Christ, he's saying. So he's able to challenge them. Now, let's move quickly in our last five minutes. He says in this last section that we must receive the obligations of the gospel. We must receive the obligations of the gospel. What are they? Number one, he says our worship must be pure. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's he talking about here? He can see it in their lives. Not only are they questioning His apostolic authority, but they are participating in the pagan rituals that in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, He told them not to do. A minority of the church has not yet separated themselves from false religion. And sometimes, you know, people will have interfaith worship services, and I want to say, what in the heck is that? Or let me just be really specific. What in the hell is that? Because that's what it is. What in, where in the hell did that come from? You're, you're taking the pure worship of the living God, the only one who is, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to meld Him in with some other gods and say, let's just worship God in general. And you're demeaning Christ as though He's just one of many gods. Please. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked in your worship. Are you kidding me? Worship must be pure. That's the reason, frankly, I think we even need to be concerned about some of the school prayer issues that the evangelicals for years have been pushing. You know, the big question is, what prayer are you going to pray and to whom are you going to pray it? And if there's some generic prayer that everybody can join in on, I'm quite sure my children can't join in on it. Because it's some, to some generic God that doesn't exist, and we only pray to a God who exists. So just be very careful. What you get, or what you ask for, you might get it. A generic God who doesn't exist. And that's the God you're going to worship in the public schools. No thank you. He says, be very careful about being unequally yoked. And of course, that applies to marriage. All you have to do is look at Malachi chapter 2 that we studied some years ago. Paul says, the sons of God don't marry the sons of false God, daughters of false gods. Why? Because the marriage and the family is to be a place of worship. You thought about that? Your marriage is a worshiping unit. Your family is a worshiping unit. So you don't yoke yourself to someone who worships another god. There has to be pure worship in your household. That's the reason you don't mix marriages. Some of you say, well, should I have a business partner who's an unbeliever? I don't think this text is necessarily talking about that, but I do think it's talking about who your soulmates are. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. David had Jonathan. And they all encouraged each other in the Lord. They shared their secrets with each other. They 
disclosed their fears to each other and they encouraged each other in the Lord. Don't do that with an unbeliever. You go as far as you can with the unbeliever to build a legitimate, somewhat superficial friendship. But it's legitimate, it's authentic, it's real, and it's love. But you don't become a soulmate with an unbeliever. Why? Because he'll take you off in a different direction eventually. Look at Solomon and his wives. You say, well, I'm old. It doesn't matter who I marry. Oh, yeah, it does. Look at Solomon in his old age. It was his pagan wives who led his heart astray and he had a terrible ending. Don't do it. Don't be unequally yoked. Why? Because number one, sacred and unclean don't mix. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Some things don't mix. And God's worship and fellowship doesn't mix with the fellowship of pagan gods or the idols of our age. It doesn't mix. Don't try it. He doesn't appreciate it. And secondly, we are sacred. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. And we've already been told this in 1 Corinthians 3. And what does that mean? We'll look at three things here as Paul quotes about six Old Testament quotations here. First of all, God is among us. I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is the signature promise of the Old Testament. I will be their God. They will be my people. If you go in our sanctuary and you'll look around the face of the balcony, you'll see these symbols. They're all symbols of covenants in the Old Testament until you get all the way around to the southeast corner and there you're dealing with the new heavens and the new earth. All these covenants God has made representing one covenant in Christ. And on the face of the north balcony in our sanctuary, you'll see these words, I will be your God, will walk among you, you'll be my people. Leviticus 26, this text right here. It's emblazoned upon the north balcony. Why? Because at the center of all these covenants is one covenant, and the center of that covenant is God's promise to be with us and to be our God, and we'll be His people. Oh, how lovely. Paul is saying, would you please not forget this? You knuckleheads, you're out there worshiping other gods and mixing up your worship with other things that are going on in your life. Please remember one thing, only one God and only one promise to one people, and that's you. He is among us. And secondly, God calls us to separate ourselves. Come out from among them. We see in the Old Testament, he's quoting Isaiah. And thirdly, God is our Father. The God in heaven is your daddy. He's with you and he's called you to come out. So you don't mix yourself with unrighteousness. Now lastly, we receive the obligations of the gospel, which is that our worship must be pure, but also our conduct must be pure. And that involves three things. Our motives, and we've seen this before, so we'll just race through it. Gratitude for His promises and reverence for His holiness. Those are our motives. If you want to know how to live a holy life, get yourself really grateful for His promises and get yourself really awestruck with His holiness. Now you're going to be ready to hear His commandments. Secondly, we take action. We cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Every defilement. Anything that comes between you and your relationship with Christ, you cleanse yourself of it. You take action in view of the motives that you have. And then lastly, we're aware of our destiny. We bring holiness to completion. What is the completion of holiness? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the end or the goal of the law. And the goal of all of your promise believing and the goal of all your commandment keeping 
is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your destiny. Keep that ever before you. And then you're able to say, I commend myself to you, not as a perfect man, but as a man who's seeking to walk with Christ. And I bid you with everything in me, come, walk with me. That's what Paul's saying. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for the Gospel that has saved our souls and saves the souls of our friends and family and our neighbors and everyone in the world. Please help us to be effective ambassadors of Yours in this world by living lives that commend ourselves to those around us by our character, by our love, by our endurance, by our willingness to live in the the paradoxical antitheses of a spiritual life in a broken world. And help us, O Lord, to take on the obligations of the gospel and to encourage others to do the same. And we make our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Amen.